0: Raising black children in the United States can be really scary. And as a black mother, I realized I was parenting from fear and I wanted to make a commitment to parent for liberation. You are listening to the Parenting for Liberation podcast. I am your host, Trina Green Brown each episode I'm joined by other black parents and we discuss our journeys to push past our fears to raise our beautiful black children to be whole free and liberated
1: wake up everybody no more sleeping in bed. No more-
0: hey it's been a while this is our first episode of 2020 I originally planned 2020 to be a year to come out swinging With updated content and brand and look with Parenting for Liberation, I was really excited about all that 2020 was going to start off with, Um, but it came with some loss personally for me. I lost my father in the first couple of weeks of the year. I wrote a blog about it, about how to grieve and parent, how to grieve and lead an organization. And I'm still moving through that. And I plan to do a podcast episode about that next month because not only am I personally grieving... The world is grieving. We're all grieving a sense of losing our normal life, our normal day-to-day, where a lot of us are on shelter-in-place orders right now because of the coronavirus, and so just sending folks lots of love um, and positive energy and healing energy. Um, but this first episode of 2020 is a podcast within a podcast. I was interviewed by Cindy of Parenting Forward and Leslie of Latinx Parenting. The three of us, as parents of color, are really trying to intentionally decenter whiteness. So check out this podcast. Hope you like it.
2: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Parenting Forward. I'm your host, Cindy Wong Brandt. We are in the middle of a series titled Parenting Decentering Whiteness. Leslie Hillebrand, co-founder of Latinx Parenting, is my co-host for this series. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Hey, Cindy. So happy to be back. Today, we are going to just get on with it and introduce our guest, Trina Green Brown. Leslie, can you maybe um, tell us why we invited Trina for this session?
1: Yes. So Trina Green Brown, she's a mama activist of two. She founded an amazing organization called Parenting for Liberation, which believes in the power of Black parents to conceive birth and nurture liberation for the future. And I met Trina, I reached out to her probably about a year ago when our work was really starting to get rolling and I realized that, oh my gosh, there's this organization that's doing this very similar, very aligned work for and with Black parents. And so I feel like that is such a crucial movement to be a part of. And she's kind of at the forefront of that and leading that. And so I'm just so excited to be in connection with her because it's such important work.
2: That's awesome. Trina. welcome to Parenting Forward. we so glad to have you here and so thrilled to see the amazing work that you do. So let's go ahead and get into it. You are the founder of Parenting for Liberation. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your own story, what you do, and why you do what you do. Yes. Thank you so much. So happy to meet you, Cindy.
0: And thank you, Leslie, for inviting me on. My name is Trina. And I, as Leslie shared, I'm a mom of two in a blended family, raising two beautiful Black children here in Southern California, where I actually met Leslie as well. And the work that I'm doing is really about centering Black families in all spaces, centering our healing, centering our joy, centering our resilience against many obstacles, hurdles, oppressions, both internal on our own oppression against ourselves, but also systematically. And the reason I got into this work, I've been in movement work my entire life. My father recently passed this year, and I think about how he raised me under the Black Power movement. He always had his fist up. And so I was raised as a little girl to always be questioning systems and questioning things that felt inequitable or didn't feel right and to always have my fists raised high for the revolution. And so as a parent, that has been Integrated in the way that I raise my children, and we're often challenging systems, challenging notions that are trying to limit what it means to be a Black child, to be a free Black child, to be a Black girl who has Black girl magic or a Black boy who can have Black boy joy. And limiting anything, whether it be sexism that tells them that what a boy should do and what a girl should do and all these gender narratives, from that range to interrupting Things inside the schools, whether it be school push out or the way that Black children are systematically pushed out of school or automatically labeled in education systems. So just running the kind of range of how we show up in multiple spaces as parents, as children, as family, like ensuring that we are resilient and bold and proud and joyful as Black folks. And so that's been the work that I've been doing my whole life. And parent Liberation really tries to bring parents together to look at the ways the systems have oppressed us historically and currently ongoing oppression and how can we heal from that, interrupt the ways that that type of trauma or violence is integrated in our own lives? How do we interrupt that, whether it be interrupting generational violence? And once we interrupt that, how do we then pull together our power, our strength, our resilience to resist any type of systems of oppression that are impacting us and our families and our community?
2: To be really generalizing, and almost binary. Do you feel like it's ever a struggle to balance the positive and the negative parts of this kind of work because like you can really talk about injustice and oppression and I mean things like slavery and historical pains and trauma like that's really really heavy and I love that you talk so much about Black Girl Magic and Black Boy Joy at the same time and you you almost have to to sustain the movement but do you feel like that's a hard balance to strike how much to do one or the other I mean I know it's bound up together but practically speaking when you're choosing topics for your workshops or you're um, hosting conversations online or in person, like that's still a balance to strike, right? Do you ever wrestle with that tension? It's definitely a balance. You're definitely right. A quote that has guided
0: the work of Parenting for Liberation is a quote by Audre Lorde, which says, Raising Black children in the mouth of a racist, sexist, suicidal dragon is perilous and chancy. If they cannot love and resist at the same time, they will not survive. And so all of the work that I've been doing and that we do at Parents Liberation looks at the coupling of love and resistance. And so you're right. We can't only be talking about systems of oppression if we're not also talking about joy and resilience. And so a lot of the work that we do is wrapped in this sense of healing. And healing justice doesn't ignore the fact that racism is happening. It can't ignore the fact that, you know, incarceration rates are high. It can't ignore school pushout. It doesn't ignore that but it reminds us of our innate ability to heal from that. And in our healing, we are resisting, returning to our ancestral ways of resisting and healing and loving on each other as a form of resistance. And so a lot of our spaces are both and we are bringing families together to celebrate, to be joyful, to love on each other, to practice healing modalities, whether it be Saging ourselves or creating teas or creating body scrubs and utilizing different essential oils that have different healing properties. We're utilizing that and we're also building community with each other so that we see each other and we know that we're not alone in this struggle. But then also because we see each other and we have each other, we feel more empowered, more emboldened to actually resist. And so I think you're right. Like it, it is hard and it is a balance, but I'm often saying we have grown and lived in this reality of oppression. But even through that, we have often Our ancestors have taught us that we have the innate ability to heal and resist and use our own
1: love and joy and resilience as resistance. Wow. I'm just smiling so big listening to you, Trina, because I just feel so similarly, I think, about some of the ancestral ways that us in the Latinx community are relying heavily on right now, you know, and and that communal sense of solidarity is so strong right now, especially. And so I really appreciate your words.
2: So do you feel like as a leader of the movement that there are certain parts of your work that resonate more easily and then others that are more resistant. Like for example, is it easier to get people to be activated for going on a march or or writing letters, or is it easier to get people to come together, you know, for these like healing times of healing and camaraderie? What do you find is harder to do basically in terms (laughs) of like the audience and your, and your people and your community? Yeah, that's a good question. First, I think it's about doing what
0: I'm called to do. So as a leader, knowing that I can't do everything, like I am not the leader who also leads protests and organizes and also leads Healing circles and there are people who probably can't do all of it. And if I really was pushed to do it, I probably could, but I really want to be in the work of like, what am I called to do? What is, what is my gift and offering to this space? What is my medicine that I provide? And that's around building beloved community. Like that is my offering. That's my gift that I was given from spirit, from God. Like that's who I am, how I show up in the work in my life. I'm about bringing people together and being in community together. And so that's been my movement strategy. And that's my orientation to the way of ending and interrupting cycles of violence. And so I do think that there are people who are drawn and definitely a part of Parental Liberation Strategy is once we do the healing work and we and parents are doing liberated parenting in their own home, then now Black parents are positioned to connect and organize with local and national and regional organizations like Black Lives Matter the Black Youth Project or move to end violence. And so I do the work of like connecting folks to these other entities that already exist that are doing the protests and the marches. And my gift in this space is really about like bringing us together to see each other, to, to heal and to interrupt some of our own patterns that we're experiencing.
2: That's so good. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it just takes many different people in different movements and to see collaboration and to recognize kind of your lane and what you're gifted in and what your passion is for and how that contributes to the larger movement. I think it's so good to have that clarity. Leslie,
1: what about you? Like, What's the medicine you bring? Wow. I'm so glad you asked that. I just resonate so much with what Trina was saying. I was sharing with a coach I have Her whole coaching platform is about what your story medicine is. And I was telling her, I said, it doesn't even feel right now like much of a choice. Like, I feel like this is really a vocation, a calling. Like, this is something that we don't really have a choice but to engage in all of these decolonizing movements, the movement of nonviolence. It's like we are in it for humanity. And there's just not a lot of solidarity, I think, with those movements, I feel like the dominant paradigm of oppression and and all of these things that you mentioned at the beginning, I feel like that is such a strong current that has been present for so long. And so now it's time for us to kind of wake up. And so I feel like more of us, you know, I think parenting influencers of color, especially more of us kind of speaking out and really being present and taking up space, I feel like is really crucial in this moment.
2: Yeah. And I I have to clarify that I don't really think this is fair at all that we have to be asking these questions in the first place, right? Like it feels like only parenting influences of color are thinking about how do we balance activism and resistance and healing, right? Like all of the things, there's that extra burden I think that we have to carry because of historical trauma. So I just want to recognize that this isn't even a fair question to ask in the first place, but it also exists and is a reality. So thank you for having this conversation.
0: Cindy, can I pose a challenge to folks who are listening who don't identify as parent of color? That it's also their responsibility to have these conversations with their children. Non-parent of color, white parents need to be having these conversations with their children because their children and they also as parents could also interrupt violence. They also can interrupt white supremacy. They can also interrupt systematic oppression because those children will grow up to be in leadership in some of these institutions. And if they have these conversations with their children now, we could potentially interrupt the cycles of violence that exist that impact communities of color at the hands and leadership of non-communities of color. This is a conversation they should be having with their children. It's not fair that we have to have it. And it's a disservice if they're not having these conversations as well within their own homes.
2: Well said. Let's talk a little bit about spanking. I think I speak for all three of us that we advocate for nonviolent parenting. I find the conversation about spanking is more complicated in communities of color because in addition to advocating for a child's physical autonomy and safety, we also have to talk about a history of physical violence, trauma police brutality, family models, etc. And this is another one of those things I find white, gentle parenting spaces have the privilege to not talk about. How do you navigate the intersection of compounding factors when you talk about Black parenthood? And Leslie, you too. How do you navigate the conversation around spanking with some of the stigma, stereotypes about communities of color? And for families of color, how do you address issues like corporal punishment.
0: When it comes to conversations around spanking or whooping, I often turn to a Black author who's done a lot of research on this, Stacey Patton, who wrote the book Spare the Kids, Why Whooping Children Won't Save Black America. And what I love about the work that she does is that she intentionally doesn't look at Spanking and whooping from a pointing the finger at black parents lens, but looks at it within a context of historical trauma, looks at it within the context of current ongoing trauma and systematic trauma that's happening even today for black folks. And I also look to the work of Dr. Joy DeGruy who does work on post traumatic slave syndrome and looks at the ways that black folks during enslavement learned ways of being in their own dominance, right? In their own being abused and violated and being with Like those habits and those tendencies are actually learned from white supremacy. And so then utilizing those same habits have become maladaptive strategies as ways to try to prevent their children from being harmed. Right. And so there's this cycle of violence that's happening with the ultimate goal of trying to prevent further violence from happening to their children at the hands of white institutions or white systems. And so what I love about the work that they're doing is that it's an intentionality. I'll read a quote from Dr. Patton's book. She says, let me be clear. I don't want to talk about what's wrong with Black people, but rather how racist systems and policies have created a hostile environment that has caused levels of trauma that have led to us hurting one another. And it says, while Black parents and caretakers may perpetrate cycles of pain and trauma when they whip their children, white America is always supplying the ingredients for our problems. And so it's really this intentionality to be about raising consciousness about Like, you're not choosing to do that because you want to. Like, actually helping folks to identify how that is a learned behavior from white supremacy. And so that's some of the work that Parent of Liberation is intentionally trying to do. It's about having us look at historical violence and trauma and how that is actually linked to the way that we parent our kids when we do make those choices to whip. And also helping folks to understand that whipping is not going to prevent any of the trauma that you're worried about. Whether it be, like, I'm going to whip my child so that they don't get arrested. I'm going to whip my child so that they do good in school. Like, all of those strategies actually don't... Don't prevent the violence that you're hoping for. It actually creates more violence and creates cycles of violence in our communities. That's been a piece of the work that we're trying to do. And that is some of the hardest work because it's about having folks take a step back from their own fear of what could happen to their child and have them step out of that fear and actually look at what is the impact of their choices that they're making.
1: Yeah, I really resonate with that. I think that that's why our work is so aligned, Trina, because we also have such a deep history of colonization and conquest. And all the layers that go along with that have made it so that not only do people still very heavily spank and use la chancla and the belt in Latinx homes, but now we have normalized it to the point where it's becoming memes you know, there was like a TikTok video that was posted by an account. I won't share the account because I don't want to bring attention to the video, but it was like, this is how I act in public with my kids. And the man is like pretending to be an angel. And then it's like, and this is how I act at home. And he's like taking off his belt. And, and so many people, this is like a, a Latinx account. And so, so many people were under that saying like, this is hilarious. Somebody had said, you know, watch the people come and say that this is abuse with like a bunch of laughing emojis. And so I feel like this is definitely an uphill battle for us as well. I think that what has really resonated at least with the parents that we've worked with is bringing that fact up, you know, that this isn't necessarily something that was originally, you know, it didn't come from us originally. It was a result of conquest and colonization. Something that I really have resonated with is Resmaa Menekum's work. He has a book called My Grandmother's Hands, which really talks about how intergenerational trauma exists in our bodies now. And so how a lot of the trauma that we experience, we may not be able to cognitively reflect on it. If it's in our bodies, it's about doing the body work to really self-regulate and to notice where these feelings are coming up. And so what is really great though, is that we do find that a lot of Latinx parents are very receptive. I think especially people in my generation, I'm in my thirties. And so we're seeing that those discipline strategies didn't work for us. We're not that much more connected to our parents. We have access now to brain development information, to information around ACEs and trauma. And so I feel like once the information is available, then people do resonate with it. You know, I've, I've also taught groups where it's older generation Mexican folks in the elementary schools. And as soon as I start talking about reconnecting with your own inner child and how did that feel for you, that's when people I feel start opening up a little bit more because nobody can negate the fact that it it sucks to get whooped, you know, it sucks to get spanked. And maybe people are defending it and, and have trauma bonding around, you know, I was spanked and I'm fine and, and I'm not going to disrespect my parents by saying that they were wrong to do this. But I think it's really about reconnecting with that inner child and just acknowledging that there was pain and there was hurt and then moving from there.
2: Yeah, I think trauma bonding is exactly it. And I also wonder if it's a way for people to... It's like an identity formation, right? Like you get to have this group, you feel connected to your own group because this is an experience that's kind of separate from white America. I feel like that's what's going on when people are commenting in that TikTok video. They're saying that, yeah, look, this is the way, this is our experience and trying to assert that and trying to distinguish yourselves and feeling camaraderie and feeling like you're part of, you're identifying as part of this community. But unfortunately, with something that's really quite unjust to children. I just wonder how we can collaborate because I collaborate with other white gentle parenting influencers like, you know, LR Nost and all these wonderful influencers who do advocate for justice for children and their physical autonomy. But I do feel frustrated maybe that's. I guess I feel like it's unfair again (laughs) that they don't seem to have to address these intersectional issues. And I kind of think maybe they should, (laughs) because otherwise it further harms communities of color when it's just not talked about. Does that make sense? Do you feel the same way? Yeah, I think they should definitely be
0: talking about the intersections of oppression, slavery, colonization, and its impacts on communities of color and the way we parent. In Stacy's book, she acknowledges the fact that the African Americans haven't had, we've only had like 150 years of being able to raise our children without someone else. And that, I don't even know if that, I, I'm like thinking about that number, I'm like, I don't even know if that's true with the ways that, you know, the welfare system or the Department of, child welfare services, those type of departments actually do overly surveil and criminalize Black parenting. So even that might be odd. One thing I was thinking about when you mentioned like white gentle parenting influencers is when I think about things and rates of violence in the United States, and I think about the heightened level of white male violence, like there is a conversation that they can be having that they might not be having around toxic masculinity in the white community and its impact on children and like children who grow up to be the ones who like shoot up schools and things like that, right? Like there is conversation that can be happening in that community as well around historical trauma.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I don't see that conversation really happening. I don't know why that is. You know, I have seen that there have been some white audiences that get really offended when people that they've been following or whatever bring these things up, but it's such a crucial conversation. Like let's talk about the parenting that happened with the El Paso shooter. Let's talk about the parenting that happened with all of these terrorists, like white terrorists, really, if we're going to name it. And I don't see that conversation happening. And you're right, Trina, like it adds, I think, another burden to what we're doing because we're doing the work within our own cultures, within our own communities. And we're not seeing that work being done in the white community, unfortunately. If it is being done, I, I have not seen that.
2: I mean, I'm just, I'm not even asking for a lot. Like, I can't expect white parenting influences to be as expert or nuanced in these conversations. But I feel like just acknowledging that, yes, gentle parenting, not spanking your children is something we strive for, but there are privileges inherent in even being able to have that goal and just being aware. And like you were saying, just having the race conversation. (laughs) Really, I think I don't want why silence. There shouldn't be silence on these intersections of race and other sorts of oppressions in the conversation about not spanking children.
1: Yeah. And isn't that also like a symptom of the privilege though? The silence, you know, like they don't have to, right? right. Like they don't really have to. So
2: I think they do though, <laughs> but of course, you know, what, what can you do? Well, Cindy, you said you're not
0: asking for a lot. I am definitely asking for a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Like we need, the, we need a lot. They need to step up and do a lot. Like we are burdened. We're burdened with the fact that we've experienced the trauma. We have to do healing work and we got to teach you. Like, no, I'm not doing that. We're work to do. So I'm asking for you to do the work.
1: I, you know, there's like an elephant in the room right now because we're on day what? three of quarantine in the United States right now, or at least in Orange County, California, where I am. And they just issued a health order that everybody has to stay indoors. So I just, I want to address that because I think that obviously there are some communities that are going to be impacted by this pandemic a lot more than others. And so I feel like Black, Indigenous, people of color in those communities are. So I wanted to bring that up to Trina and just ask you, Trina, how you think that some of the effects that may be experienced or in, in the coming weeks or days, what is that effect and how may that ripple into the future? You know, and you could just kind of speak on on your experience about that.
0: It is a definitely a trying time for all folks and just want to pause. My orientation as a person who holds space and is a healer or does healing circles is to want to like pause to like honor folks who have lost their lives because of this pandemic and this virus, folks who are currently ill and wanting to send like healing energy and vibes across the audio webs for folks who are struggling right now. Thank you. So yeah, I just want to take that moment and acknowledge that it's it's, it's heavy. Like even when we transition to this topic, I was just like, I could feel my energy like drop. And so I just think the impact, particularly on African-American folks, it's, it's, it's impacting everyone and there's a heightened impact for multiple reasons, like medically, like African-Americans have disproportionate high rates of already undergoing our underlying illnesses, which makes you more susceptible to the coronavirus, right? So like African-American folks have high rates of diabetes, high blood pressure, and also asthma, our respiratory issues because of sometimes where we live. And so I just want to like add that layer that African-American folks are more susceptible to the virus, given that they have a lot of pre-existing conditions. And also As a community, we often have had a strong distrust of medical practitioners because of the ways that our bodies have been experimented on and cut open and been tested on from Harrietta lax to the Tuskegee Airmen, right? And so medically, we have an impact because of racism in the medical field. Economically, there's an impact on African-American families when I think about like the unemployment rate supposedly is going down. However, like the types of jobs that a lot of African-Americans have don't provide them sick days. And so folks having to take time off without pay or taking time away without having any sick pay or leave. And so I know that there's a lot of federal Supports that are coming down the pike where folks can like actually get some unemployment and things like that, which is helpful. But it is a scary time for folks who have to choose between, you know, going to work and trying to make money to support their family and having to stay home and not feeling like you're going to have enough money to pay your bills. So there's a lot of stress and anxiety around that, although I know the government is trying to move to create safety nets for folks at this time who don't have that. And I think educational wise, all of the schools are closing and they're going online. And like, what's the internet divide, right? Like who has access to just be able to go and get a computer and just go online and do their homework and go on school online. Like a lot of kids who don't have access to internet, who don't have access to a computer, there's multiple kids in one home and there's one computer and they're fighting over it to do their homework, right? So I think there's also like that. And then also in school, a lot of kids their main meals come from school, right? Like they get their breakfast and their lunch at school. And so how is not being at school limiting people's access to meals? And so I know a lot of school districts are creating pickup spots where folks can still get lunches and still get breakfast because we know that there's a lot of kids who that's their only meal. I know that that's a a low-income problem as well. So I just think about there's multiple layers that folks are sometimes not holding when they think about what's the impact of like everybody being quarantined at home that there's all these multiple underlying issues that might be impacting communities of color and Black communities specifically at higher rates.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, it seems like a crisis like this kind of heightens the systemic injustice that already existed, but kind of brings that out even even more and impacts folks even more. So thank you for sharing that with us so that we're more aware.
1: Yeah, I also wanted to just add with that, you know, you mentioned the parental stress that may be experienced right now by communities of color. And we had just posted on our Instagram, you know, thinking about actually it actually was a Stacey Patton tweet. And she had said, you know, thinking about all the children that are going to be home with abusive parents. And that's not just, you know, to black parents or to Latinx parents, but I can't really shake that that concern that I'm feeling and at the same time I'm seeing other people say if you suspect abuse call it in and I'm like I don't think I would do that if I had a black neighbor just knowing how that might be approached versus whether it was like a white neighbor I don't know if I would feel comfortable calling CPS right away and so I'm wondering if there's something like if there's a conversation that we can have around how to support those families what are some things that maybe we can do and this maybe goes to both of you like what are some things that that maybe we can do to ease the burden on parents to ease the stress cuz i feel like we all kind of have to be all in right now and support each other and so Somebody actually reached out to us on our Facebook page last night and said that they have that situation. They have a, a neighbor; she's black, and she's obviously stressed out, and she's yelling, and they can hear the children crying. And I, I'm not sure. You know, I haven't responded yet. I'm like, I'm not sure how to respond to that. So I'm wondering if any of you have thoughts about that.
0: Yeah, that has been coming up um, in terms of conversations. A friend of mine, similarly on Facebook, posted a similar thread and started to collect a list of things that people could do. And that was, you know, again, this circumstance is evolving very quickly. So this was about a week or so ago, Amita Swadden had posted about how can we show up for those children? And so they had come up with some ideas about like, could you go next door and offer, like, bring a toy and say, oh, I got this for the kid. Do you need any help with your child? Or I brought I made this meal. Like, just going to the door to try to interrupt that moment of stress. And it was, like, other ideas around, like, oh, offering to, like, keep the kid for an hour. You know, I can read a book with them for an hour. They can come to my house, like my neighbor. But because now that even those options are being... Limited because now if we're on quarantine, and you can only stay in your own house. Like, how are those things limited? And so it's still like it's an evolving situation, and it's just like, well, what can you do? How can you be in relationship with that parent? because you get on a phone call with that parent? And not about criticizing them, but helping them to like release, relax, to heal, to breathe. Can you offer them some healing tinctures or ointments? Can you offer them resources? Like, can you offer them like, oh, I have an extra, I cooked extra food. Here's some food, you know, for you and your kids and your family because it might be stressful. Like what are the ways that you can offer relief for that parent so that they can have a moment to pause? And what are the ways that you can show up for that child so that they feel like they have someone Nearby, And what are the ways to do that, given the new kind of restrictions? And I think this is going to continue to be evolving.
2: Yeah, I feel like just as the pandemic is highlighting the systemic injustices, it's also highlighting the resources and the work that was being done before the pandemic struck. Because like the work that you've been doing, Trina, of healing and of supporting the friendships and the relationships and the community building work that has been done before this, hopefully can come into play at this moment now. And you can offer those resources that have like a foundation to give people the support that they need, because you really do have to have kind of a relational foundation. I think it's really hard to go into a complete stranger's home and try to offer support. It could bring some disruption and yeah I hope some of those ideas work out for people I'm just also hoping that the work that people have been doing to build community and support becomes a resource at this time yeah I
0: definitely agree that it requires some relationship and and I think this is the time now to actually begin if you haven't had those relationships with a neighbor like the time is now it's even more vital to build connections when we're when we're being told to social distance it's like we can social distance. But that doesn't mean that we have to disconnect relationally. Like how can we also maintain connections or build connections? Because right now we're going to realize that all that we have is each other to get through these type of situations. So...
2: Yeah, I heard someone say that we should call it physical distancing instead of social distancing because we still need to be social.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that much more, right? Like I, I was just listening to Parenting is Political. They just had an episode and she was saying that this is the time to be that much more connected, you know, like get that need for community met more. Our cup has always needed to be filled in order to fill our children's. But now we need to constantly be checking in with each other and to give ourselves those resources. That are gonna allow for us to continue to support each other, even remotely. And I think it's such a beautiful thing that we're experiencing this during this time where we have access to technology, where many of us do have access to technology so that we can remain connected in these ways. I just think that that's like a lucky break, kind of <laughs> like we have Zoom play dates and we have access to, like, my children and I were doing cosmic kids yoga earlier. And so I wanna just stay grateful, right? And trust that this is going to pass, but, but also stay grounded.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you so much. To wrap up, we're asking all the guests on our series, who are your favorite parenting influencers of color? So Trina, maybe you can tell us yours since Leslie and I already shared ours in last week's episode. Ooh, good
0: question. Hmm, okay, well, I have, it's a plug and also it's, it's a way to make my connection, right? So I have a book coming out with Feminist Press in June, 2020. It's called Parenting for Liberation, A Guide for Raising Black Children. In that book, I interview many Black parents who I see as influencers, over 20 stories in the book. So of those folks, I'll rattle off a few names. Cecilia Caballero, who is um, a co-founder of Chicana Motherwork. Woo-hoo! I feel like the whole revolutionary mothering squad who wrote that book. So China Martins, Maya, Alexis Falling Gums. Danny McLean, author of We Live for the Week. Incredible Black Feminist Mom. That book is everything if you haven't read about Mia Birdsong, Daniel Atkinson of Mothering Justice, Jacqueline robox of Black Activist Mothering. The list could keep going, but yeah, I think if you even check out the folks who are in, in the book, who are interviewed in the book, you will see like... A plethora of incredible folks who are doing work to center Black parenting. And they might not be influencers in the particular way that folks describe, but they're definitely influencing and impacting the way that I raise my children. And I hope that by them being in the book that they will have impact on multiple families throughout
2: the nation. That's awesome. Wow, that's really awesome. I can't wait to check out some of those resources. And folks, don't forget to check out Trina's podcast, Parenting for Liberation. And do you have a website? Yes, www.parentofliberation.org. Okay, and we could probably get news of the book, the upcoming book there and links to all your other socials as well, right? That is correct. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Everybody
0: be safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting for Liberation. I hope that something shared on this episode helps you on your journey to liberated parenting. To learn more about our other episodes, check out our website at www.parentingforliberation.org backslash podcast. Please like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're listening on iTunes, make sure you give us a good review.
1: Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed, no more backward thinking.